You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Welcome to ODI. I am Sara Pantuliano. I'm a managing director here to ODI. I'm delighted to welcome everyone in the room and our very numerous online audience today at this Yet another event on South Sudan here to the eye. Um, the event this afternoon is uh, really informed by um, the, our latest uh, um, issue of humanitarian exchange that is entitled The Crisis in South Sudan. That's been, you know, as always, very ably put together by Wendy Fenton, the HPN coordinator. Um, before we start, just a couple of things. Uh, we will start with the panel discussion. We will then open up to the audience. If you have questions that you want to ask the panelists, jot them down. If you are online, put them in the web chat at the bottom of uh, um, your screen. And then when I open up the floor, I'll be taking um, questions both from the only audience and everyone in the room. Um, we do have an um, event hashtag that starts with future. So please do feel free to tweet, but do keep the phones on silent here in the room. So why another event on South Sudan? Um, I mean, we actually uh, published an issue of humanitarian exchange on South Sudan in 2013, you know, just three, four years ago. And some of the trends that we're seeing today, some of the, if you want the nervousness around where South Sudan was going, was already flagged in that issue of humanitarian exchange. But it's fair to say that whilst, you know, we were picking up a lot of the the problems, the tensions, there was still some optimism, you know, in trying to build state institutions. You know, the tone of the magazine was upbeat. And the optimism has really waned, you know, very quickly, very rapidly, um, you know, since, 2000, uh, since December 2013, um, whilst we all expected, you know, things to not go <laughs> particularly smoothly, I think the speed the scale of the devastation has actually taken pretty much everyone by surprise. You know, a number of us are long-term Sudan and South Sudan watchers and observers, uh, but even, you know, for people that have been following the country very closely and, you know, South Sudanese colleagues, and like you know, some of those who are in the room with us, we're all really surprised by how quickly things um, have degenerated. So since 2013, we know that the conflict has displaced almost 2 million people within Sudan and actually 1.3 million to neighboring countries. And we know that there are 4.8 million that are food insecure in the country today. Um, we, it, it's hard to believe that after the optimism of a few years ago, we are reporting you know, such bleak figures. We have a mission in the country that a lot of people feel very uncomfortable, feel, you know, that it's not done a particularly good job at protecting civilians, um, even though that is, the, you know, the raison d'etre. That's why they are in the country. And in fact, South Sudan has become a very dangerous place, one of the most dangerous places to be an aid worker, uh, both for South Sudanese and for international staff. Um, so we'll discuss all of this today. Um, the event is... Um, is called South Sudan at another crossroads. But you know, <laughs> one of a colleague on Twitter actually commented, well, more than a crossroads, it feels like a roundabout. <laughs> and so yes, let's discuss why we continue to be around this roundabout. Um, we've got a great panel of speakers, both in London and actually in different parts of the world. I'll start with the, the colleagues who are here next to me. So to my left is Lydia Stone. Lydia is a senior manager on security, justice, and peace building at Social Development Direct. But Lydia, Lydia has been working on South Sudan for a very long time in different capacities. She has lived in and worked in South Sudan between 2007 and 2014. And you've done a lot of things from you know, security and justice to gender advisor for a number of programs, including on SPLA transformation, on DRR. Um, I'm working with you know, DFI Stabilization Unit, UN Women, Danida, so plenty of experience to draw upon for today's discussion. To my right, my colleague, Marege Shomeros, is a senior research fellow here at ODI. Um, but you know, she's also been researching and lecturing on South Sudan at the London School of Economics. She's led a very big program of research on justice and security that focus on South Sudan. She's been doing research on South Sudan for a very long time, <laughs> as far as I can remember, in, through my engagement in South Sudan as well, on a number of issues from uh, um, resolution of violent conflict, civil military relations, use of information technology, actually media, uh, political contestation, security, you name it. Again, loads of experience um, to drop on. And then we go 
to our um, colleagues online, and I'm really delighted to introduce, you know, first of all, Peter Knopf, who is the coordinator of the UN Panel of Experts on South Sudan. Um, Peyton is in Washington, so he's, he's joining us from Washington. Peyton is also the senior advisor for the Crisis Management Initiative, that is a Finnish NGO that works to prevent and solve conflict through dialogue and, med and mediation. But previously, he was a senior director um, of global communications for One Voice Movement, which focuses on the Israeli-Palestine -Pal conflict. And as a former US diplomat, he served as the deputy spokesman of the US mission to the UN um, and has held different positions at the Department of State and is also an International Affairs Fellow at the Council for Foreign Relations. To in Kisumu, my dear friend Jock, Madut Jock, um, it's a pleasure, Jock, to have you with us. Jock is the director of the Sud Institute, it's a policy research center that is based in Juba. Um, he's also a professor of African study at uh, Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, California. Um, he also uh, works, is affiliated to uh, the University of Juba, and he's actually served in government as well. Um, can tell us about that experience too as under secretary for uh, the Minister of Youth, Culture and Sports, if I remember correctly. But Jock has been authoring a lot of research and books on security, political violence, gender-based violence, and the politics of identity in Sudan and South Sudan. And last but not least, in New York, we have Matt Wells. Matt is a senior crisis advisor at Amnesty International, um, where you know he focuses on human rights investigations in situations of armed conflict. Um, prior to Amnesty, Matt worked as a senior advisor on peacekeeping at the Center for Civilians in Conflict. And he actually focused in particular on UMMIS um, in South Sudan. And before that, Matt was actually working on West Africa as a researcher Human Rights Watch. So a great panel. I am looking forward to the discussion. Not that we feel we can really untangle the web of South Sudan, but let's give it a try. Let me start with Peyton. Um, Peyton, the panel of experts has been in existence for uh, a couple of years. It was established in 2015, and you've released a report um, just a few months ago. So you've obviously been observing things closely through the panel for a while. Can you tell us a little bit which trends, which persistent trends in particular you see on the ground? And also, how is the government and international partners really, you know, and, and, and other national um, players reacted to the report? Sure. Um, first of all, thank you very much, uh, Sarah, for having me uh, today, and congratulations to you and the ODI team and all of the contributors uh, for this excellent uh, issue of, uh, of humanitarian exchange and for continuing to highlight uh, the situation, indeed the deteriorating situation. Uh, yeah. um, it, it, to answer your first question with respect to, to sort of the trends that the panel has tracked over the last uh, 18 or so months uh, that we've been in existence, um, I think there's maybe three or four um, primary uh, trend lines that are worth noting. Um, the first is that um, collapse, uh, there's been a near complete collapse of the transitional government that was envisioned in, uh, in, the, uh, in the peace agreement that was signed in August uh, 2015, uh, and indeed very little progress uh, that we've been able to document towards any of the goal, reform goals, uh, political transition objectives uh, envisioned uh, in that agreement. Um, concurrent with that or related to with that uh, is uh, that there is, point of fact, no meaningful uh, political process uh, to draw in, uh, in, a, in a productive uh, way, uh, the, the main protagonists to the conflict uh, and channel that energy in a nonviolent um, so the consequence of those two developments uh, in the panel's judgment, uh, at least, and, and we expound our, expounded on this in, in some length in, in the report that you mentioned that came out uh, two months ago now, um, is that uh, many of the main antagonists in the conflict uh, see their only recourse as a military recourse, as a violent recourse, uh, not uh, in the absence of a, of a of a concrete political pathway to, to channel grievances and, uh, and address uh, security issues. Um, the other thing I would mention is that uh, we've seen a sharp increase in, uh, in incitement uh, to violence uh, and hate speech, uh, both online but uh, also uh, on the ground. Uh, many uh, of those in the room and folks who've been following South Sudan quite closely uh, will uh, recall, I think, with deep concern uh, going back a couple of months ago, 
the sharp increase in uh, sort of heated rhetoric across all sides. It's not a Dinka phenomenon, it's not an Equatorian phenomenon, it's not a Nuer phenomenon. You really saw it uh, across tribes in uh, very pointed uh, rhetoric against others. Uh, and I think of particular concern were instances of incitement uh, and hate speech uh, directed uh, or uh, occurring in places notes, uh, very menacing notes put on uh, churches, on NGO compounds, etc. Uh, in some cases, uh, targeting specific individuals um, by name. Um, the panel has not been able to determine uh, with any uh, certainty who, which groups are behind uh, any of these letters, uh, whether they indeed actually represent the views of specific uh, you know, groups that were alleged to sign them. But it nonetheless has contributed, I think, to a very uh, worrisome uh, climate uh, in the country and indeed continues to, to fuel uh, sort of a downward spiral of, uh, uh, of tribally-based violence, which is not, of course, uh, what uh, initially sparked the war, um, per se. Um, the last thing I would mention is just the, the um, closing of political space, uh, ongoing closing of political space within the country. Um, threats against journalists, threats against civil society, uh, threats against uh, you know any actors uh, who are um, critical of uh, particularly of the of the government in Cuba, but uh, but it does again cut across all sides, um, and uh, you even see instances of uh, any effort to mobilize even discussions to talk about um, uh, grievances uh, suppressed by. Uh, the National Security Service and other institutions of the government, even if these are not per se opposition groups or are in fact Dinka uh, uh, initiatives. Uh, nonetheless, there's a real, uh, the restrictions have increased uh, exponentially on, uh, on freedom of expression. And I think uh, that does call into question, and I, I think other panels will address this, um, but whether the environment in the country is conducive to the type of national dialogue initiative that. Um, that the president's announced uh, some weeks ago, uh, and that is still, and Doc can certainly speak to this, uh, is still being uh, looked at by a number of folks. Um, the final point is just that others will address the humanitarian situation, but uh, what the panel has tracked, both with respect to the humanitarian operation uh, and the peacekeeping operation, uh, severe uh, constraints uh, on both. Um, and, you know, of course, uh, uh, as everyone, I think, in this conversation will appreciate, uh, it's very hard for a peacekeeping operation to succeed, as we know from many other contexts, absent a viable political framework. Uh, having said that, uh, the obstruction to, uh, to movements, both of humanitarians and of peacekeepers, the threats against, uh, against uh, those personnel uh, have, con have persisted uh, for some time and indeed have gotten uh, have gotten worse, uh, and that is an additional challenge as we uh, try to address uh, the, the deteriorating situation in the country. So um, I will stop there um, and look forward to further questions. And can you tell us how the report has been received, both you know by oh, the parties in in country and outside? Yeah, I apologize. Um, you, you know, in going back actually to our, the first uh, major report that the that the panel submitted to the Security Council in August of 2015, um, we have a, have had a couple of core recommendations, um, which I will say have not been adopted uh, by uh, by the Security Council, uh, and indeed have not been uh, endorsed um, by those uh, in the region. Um, I think everyone's aware of the fact that uh, one of those recommendations, I should say, was was for an arms embargo. Um, there was uh, an attempt uh, just before Christmas uh, to uh, to push for an arms embargo within the Security Council. That attempt did not uh, succeed. Um, uh, we have also recommended uh, that, to the extent that the goals of the uh, of the Security Council uh, and of uh, and of uh, of e-gathering after communion remain an inclusive. Uh, promotion of an inclusive political process that uh, indeed ends the war, um, and that sanctions uh, can be a tool uh, to promote that, but the sanctions need to target individuals who have influence 
uh, and the ability to fundamentally change uh, the trajectory of the conflict. To date, sanctions have only been applied against uh, sort of mid-ranking um, field commanders who don't really have the ability to, to change uh, the trajectory of the situation in a substantial way. Again, uh, that recommendation has not been uh, taken up uh, meaningfully, uh, either in New York or uh, by EGAD, uh, which obviously led the mediation effort, or by the African Union. Um, so, uh, you know, in some ways that speaks for itself. Having said that, uh, I will say that we've had uh, tremendous access uh, with um, in the region um, uh, with uh, with governments um, who obviously remain deeply concerned based on their own security interests, frankly, uh, not least because of the, the, the shocking uh, refugee outflows that uh, let's talk about in, in humanitarian exchange uh, and what that means for their own security. Um, and so we continue to to. Um, you know, engage at high levels with governments in the region um, and do have a, a cooperative relationship, I think, uh, with them. But uh, but I don't want to oversell the success uh, that we've had in, in terms of uh, actualizing some of our recommendations. Thank you very much. Uh, you paint a pretty bleak picture of the situation with formidable challenges. I mean, one thing we hear, you know, all the time recently is, the importance of revitalizing the political process, and you've also alluded to that. Uh, Marek, you've done a lot of work on that. What would a, a political process that can really bring some stability back to the country look like? Um, thank you, Sarah. Um, I, I really struggle with the premise, in a way, of that question, and in a way also of the suggestion that South Sudan is at another crossroad. And I want to unpick that a little bit, because I, I wonder whether actually that premise and that idea and that very tantalizing notion of revitalizing a political process is exactly what stands in the way of meaningful political work. Um, because it reminds me a little bit about the, the talk about revitalizing a political process. It reminds me of discussions that were had 10 years ago after the CPA was signed when a lot of people started working on South Sudan and said things like, it's a blank slate for rule of law, for justice systems. It's a blank slate, as if indeed nothing existed in South Sudan. And of course, we all know that that really isn't true at all. The suggestion that there's a political process to revitalize suggests that there is no political process. And I think that is a really dangerous premise from which to start. Because of course, there is always a political process. I'd be curious to, to hear whether Jock, who is uh, such a regular commentator on politics, does feel that he is not in a political process at the moment. I would be very surprised if he says that he isn't. Because, of course, politics goes on all the time, and it's just overshadowed by this somewhat neat idea that a political process starts by setting people around a table and having an agenda and working through points. But I think we learn time and time again, and not just in the, con in the context of South Sudan, that this very neat idea of politics isn't really very helpful. Because, of course, at the other end of that very neat idea is very neat achievements. It's moments of handshakes in photographs. It's implementable next steps and so on. All of these are actually very, very complicated and often very difficult to achieve and often almost agreeing on something that needs to be implemented makes it that much harder to implement because, of course, the moment that people understand that they're now being territories are being defined these territories also become uh, the subject of defense. So in a way, talking about a political process, I would argue, almost makes a political process that little bit more difficult. Because as soon as consequences become visible, if there is a political process during which people sit around the table, then there will be some sort of consequence. It is not surprising that actors start safeguarding against these consequences. And in a way, I don't think it is su surprising that this idea of a neat political process at the same time leads to further closing of political space or further... Um, I mean, it doesn't have to be neat in any way. Well, and it doesn't have to be external either. Than, neater um, than what is, what is imagined. So in, in a way, I, I would encourage everyone to think about moving away from this idea of achievables in a process, of these you know, agreements of moments in which people say we have now achieved something because really politics hardly ever works that way anyway and, and anywhere and it's very difficult for me to imagine how it might work in, in such a heated situation. If we, if we manage to discard that notion, then what does it open up to? And that, mm -hmm. I think, becomes really very interesting because then all of a sudden, maybe ambitions become a lot, seemingly a lot smaller. Maybe it is no longer about 
having the president at the table, but actually it is about having local and very different actors at the table or not even at a table, maybe just trying to go about a daily set of actions that allow some spaces to open up again. All of this I realize in the situation that is this dire almost sounds a little bit um, naive, but I would really like to encourage everyone to think that maybe, maybe not. Maybe actually it's naive to think that a solution can come from having people sit around a table and say, we now have an agenda and we work through it, and at the end we will see clearer. But I would, you know, I would contend that that is a, an assumption, perhaps by you know some donors that are trying to push for a certain political process. But internally, as you say, there's been plenty of reflections on why that doesn't work. And yet, even though thinking about a more, you know, endogenous and perhaps also grassroots political process, I think collectively we've struggled, you know, including Jacob. I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on this. You know, to really imagine what a more diffused local political process that brings people together looks like and you know, why certain things have worked and a lot of others haven't. I think your reflection would be really useful on that. Thank you, Sarah and uh, Wendy and everyone at ODI for putting together this. Uh, can you hear me fine? Very well. We're very jealous of the sound as well behind you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I think uh, Peyton and, and Marika have uh, certainly uh, painted uh, uh, a reasonably uh, clear picture. Uh, but I want to say that uh, the crisis, uh, what we call the crisis in South Sudan today, um, can really be understood in, in, in three big blocks of issues. Uh, the first one uh, is really uh, fundamental problems of governance, uh, in, in whether it is the absence of government in terms of justice, in terms of services, in terms of security and economic opportunities, or whether the, uh, the, the, the problems of governance uh, as relates to the presence of government in terms of violence. Um, and so the, the, there are nations, oh, no. majority of South Sudanese uh, who live in rural areas have about the government and about the leaders uh, that rule their country, uh, particularly on the issue of corruption and violence. So that's one main issue that really is the fundamentally at the root of what we may call crisis of South Sudan. The second one, of course, is the consequence of that, which is the humanitarian problems. Uh, as, the, as the brief of the program has painted it, uh, there are a lot of people who, are, who have serious food deficits and who are living in, out, away from their homes, whether in exile or as IDPs within the country. Uh, these humanitarian issues are really uh, uh, a direct consequence of those uh, of that, of that di dialectic of either absence of government or presence of government in an active way. Um, the third one is the scale of violence, which uh, has been said to be widespread across the country. I think it is not really widespread across the country. I think that can be overplayed a little bit uh, in the sense that there are the, the, the violence is really localized uh, for the most part. Um, and the consequence of the three issues is that um, any kind of solution uh, to any of these issues is hinged on a driven uh, peace process, as always, by the type of uh, approach to conflict in Africa, which is that when there is a war, there has to be a mediation by an outsider and, and funded by uh, countries from the global north. And, and that the political leaders at the top are the ones that ha need to be reconciled, when in fact violence being localized and being uh, driven by everyday uh, wounds and, 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 and absence of opportunities uh, has been overlooked. And, uh, and, and as a result, I think uh, in, in recent uh, weeks uh, there has been uh, quite a degree of a promising progress uh, towards that idea of a locally driven peace process. Uh, not just the national dialogue that the president declared, but also uh, discussions going on within South Sudan about whether ARSIS, the agreement to, on the, the, the resolution of conflict in South Sudan, is still viable. And I think most people would say, 
it may be a bad piece, but we have, but it is the best we've got at the moment. Uh, because now it is no longer in the hands of the outside mediators. It is in the hands of the South Sudanese, particularly the government. If the government is interested in, in, in showing uh, that it can solve all these uh, three problems through peace, then access can be made viable uh, if the government commits uh, to it. And now um, you can do it uh, several ways. Uh, you can force the government of South Sudan through pressures to try to give uh, meaning to the peace agreement. Uh, things that have been suggested in the past, embargoes, sanctions, carrots and sticks. Uh, I think sanctions don't work. Uh, embargoes will, will, will not work. Uh, uh, what works is really a meaningful uh, debate with the government, um, both by strengthening the local voices, uh, but also diplomatic pressure from outside. Um, and and, and uh, to the, to, to, with an eye to really driving home to the leaders in South Sudan that at the end of the day, they are the ones who are supposed to care more for their people and not, the, not foreign leaders, and drive home to them that at the end of the day, peace is the only thing that will settle some of these uh, major problems that I have just outlined. Thank you. Thanks, Jock. Peyton, you want to come back on that? Jock says sanctions won't work, embargo won't work, and yet that's what the panel has recommended. You know, it is, Jock puts a lot of emphasis on the dialogue, and I think many... Um, you know, long-standing Sudan watchers you know, may agree with that. But what, why has the panel felt that actually recommending the embargo and the sanctions would probably be the best strategy then? Yeah. So it's important to understand that the, the, the mandate of the panel is somewhat uh, uh, constrained in the sense that uh, the goal of the, of the Security Council resolution that established the sanctions regime on South Sudan and, and also the panel uh, was specifically to use sanctions as a tool uh, for uh, promoting an inclusive and sustainable peace process. The panel didn't write the resolution, right? So that's the consensus judgment of the member states of the council. Uh, so our work has been defined uh, by giving the council the best recommendations that we can about achieving the goals that they set for themselves, right? Uh, or, uh, for the international community and with respect to South Sudan. Um, the point that we have made is that uh, if uh, the goal is to change behavior among the actors, uh, among the antagonists to the conflict, uh, in such a way as to make an environment that is conducive to the kinds of political trade-offs necessary to have uh, an inclusive and sustainable peace, uh, that sanctions, uh, that they need to look at certain types of individuals who are influential enough to actually change uh, the context in a meaningful way. That is not to say uh, that as a panel, uh, we in any way view sanctions uh, as a silver bullet. They are clearly not. Uh, there's no indication in any conflict uh, that sanctions of themselves uh, bring uh, a civil war, certainly of the scale, uh, to an end. Uh, obviously, I would not sit on a sanctions panel if I didn't think they could make a meaningful contribution, but it is really contingent on, uh, on a diplomatic initiative uh, within which sanctions can play a part. Uh, but a meaningful diplomatic initiative that is uh, that is grounded certainly in the in the political realities of South Sudan, uh, as uh, others have said on the panel this morning. Um, but uh, but but uh, it, it, you know they cannot sort of succeed in a vacuum. And I, I'll maybe just make one other point uh, on the political process. I think uh, I take the point that um, political. Um, you know, sometimes we get sort of distracted by by the formalities of, you know, there has to be a table and people have to be sitting on either side of it negotiating with each other. Uh, and certainly the efforts to date that have been structured like that haven't worked. I think uh, it's hard to argue uh, that we don't need a rethink uh, of, the, of the political formula for what might bring a war to, the war to an end. However, uh, I think we need to be careful not to be overwhelmed by the complexity of South Sudan. Uh, there have been uh, just as devastating, just as complex civil wars uh, on the continent, elsewhere in the world, uh, that have been brought to an end through a negotiated settlement. Uh, there are different structures, there are different models for doing that, uh, there are different ways of undertaking it. Uh, but we shouldn't uh, think that it is an impossible task uh, that cannot be uh, accomplished. And I think uh, we also have to, uh, given the scale of what we're seeing in, in South Sudan, not just the humanitarian uh, consequences, but uh, in terms of food insecurity, etc. Uh, but the the civilian death toll, while there hasn't been a comprehensive study of it, 
uh, is extraordinary. And South Sudan may indeed be, with the exception of Syria, the deadliest conflict, uh, the second deadliest conflict on the planet at the moment. And that should give us all pause. And I think, uh, you know, there needs to be some political initiative commensurate to that challenge, of which certainly pressure, uh, including sanctions, uh, can be useful. The fact of the matter is, sanctions have not been applied uh, in a meaningful way. So I think it's very hard to judge uh, whether sanctions can be effective in South Sudan or not. Designating six mid-breaking field commanders and seeing no appreciable progress, I think, is not uh, a, a an empirical indication of whether sanctions can, can meaningfully contribute here to this context. Thank you very much, Peter. Let me move, you know, let me pick on something you've said, you know, the second deadliest conflict in the world that really you know, sort of makes you... Uh, breathe in, I mean, there is an important player in this, you know, that is there to protect civilians. Um, UMIS is mandated to protect civilians. Um, it does offer shelter to 200,000 South Sudanese, and that's important to recognize. But yet, I think, you know, pretty much everyone that follows South Sudan closely uh, feels quite uneasy about, you know, what we have seen in terms of violence directed at civilians, you know, sort of particular sexual violence against women and girls and the failure of the mission to really exercise its protection mandate more robustly and, you know, negotiate better access for humanitarians and, you know, ultimately make the environment a little bit safer for both civilians and aid, aid workers. Um, there is a lot of criticism of the mission. Is the criticism justified, Lydia? Thank you. Um, yeah, sadly, the, the criticism is entirely justified. Um, when, when we look at UNMIS and the, the failings of UNMIS, it, we're not just looking at what's happened since December 2013. Um, UNMIS has failed since December 2013 because it was already quite a a complacent organization. Um, we, we go back as far as 2012 and uh, the violence that took place in Jonglei with about 3,000 civilians dying um, when we saw uh, Lo Nua marching on people over a period of weeks and, and, and miss, um, failed to intervene politically and failed to be prepared militarily. There's so many incidents. You can go back to 2009, even with UNMIS with 1S, when, the, when 100 people were killed almost outside the gates of the UNMIS compound um, in Nasser. Um, in, a, in, an, in an incident attacking some WFP boats. And throughout all of this, we saw a failure by UNMIS to engage with the community, to go outside of the walls, to be really proactive in its protection of civilian mandate. So when you have this institution that's already got this ingrained complacency and, and lack of accountability, when the violence really broke out in December 2013. It was entirely ill-equipped and unprepared. Um, it hadn't been engaging with the communities. Um, it wasn't fully understanding the political situation. Yes, UNMIS should be commended for opening the gates uh, and uh, for the POC sites. Um, but beyond that, we've seen tremendous failings in Malakal, even within the POC sites themselves. Um, MSF last year reported that three quarters of people in the POC sites don't feel that they can trust UNMIS. They've lost confidence in UNMIS. And then obviously there was the, there was the very high profile case of the terrain camp. And, you know, for a long time, so many people were asking what, what will it take for UNMIS to be proactive and respond? And, you know, uh, we're still asking that question because we're, we're seeing more and more instances where there is a complete lack of response and a lack of accountability. Thanks, Lydia. Matt, you wrote an article about this in the exchange, and you felt, uh, yes, of course, you know, there are a lot of things to criticize, but there are also mitigating circumstances. What do you think? I, I mean, I agree with everything that was just said, um, but I think it does need to be situated within a context that Peyton described earlier. Um, there have absolutely been failings by the mission, as, as was described in terms of you know, big failings like Malakal and Juba. Um, you take Malakal where you had peacekeepers actively abandon their posts 
along the perimeter, allowing the SPLA and other forces to enter a POC site and burn to the ground roughly a third of, of the camp. You have what happened in Juba in July. And we shouldn't forget the more daily failings of the mission in terms of women trying to go out to get firewood who have been subjected to sexual violence now relentlessly for three years. Um, and these sorts of daily failings don't often get the attention of things like Malakal and Juba, but have every bit, if not more, in many ways, of a devastating impact on um, civilians throughout South Sudan. At the same time, you know, I think it does need to be contextualized within the challenges that the mission faces. Um, and again, Peyton talked a bit about this earlier, but you know, the mission has been put in as bad of, you know, a bad of position as possible. It is relentlessly blocked, harassed, and at times, you know, attacked um, by parties to the conflict. Um, there were more than, you know, 200 rounds that hit UN House itself during the course of the fighting in July. There were often SPLA tanks blocking the UN from being able to leave its base to go outside. And I think some of the criticisms for the mission's inability to move should be placed on the mission, but much of it should be placed on the UN Security Council. Um, you know, the UN Security Council gave the mission a Chapter 7 mandate. There's a status of forces agreement between the mission and the government, and yet the parties to the conflict have made a mockery of this again and again. They have blocked it from moving. Um, it's gotten to a stage where the mission now has to essentially ask permission to move by air. Um, and yet the Security Council has taken no action um, in, in, in response to, again, this kind of mockery of Chapter 7 that the, that the government and the opposition have made. Um, as Peyton says, still no arms embargo, still no sanctions. And so I think in many ways, you know, the mission has been at times um, an easy kind of, you know, whipping boy because they are the ones who fail directly on a daily basis. They are the ones that we see unable to protect civilians on the ground. Um, but much of their problems in terms of resources, in terms of, um, you know, the lack of free movement come from a UN Security Council that has refused to impose any consequences on the government and on the opposition um, for not allowing the mission to do its most basic responsibilities, in addition to committing massive human rights violations um, over the course of, of three years. Thanks, Matt. Marek, you know, even the limitations we're very familiar with, is there an alternative to UMIS to keep the situation more stable on the ground? I don't know if I would go as far to say that I would know of an alternative to UMIS, but I think UMIS is a good example for what I talked about earlier, that in a way they're, they're caught between these two things they, they try to achieve. One is high political aims and the other is connections with communities, protection of civilians. And I think in between those two, they, they fail to do either one particularly well. And if we take it back to this idea, well, how would you approach a different type of process? Maybe there's a, a real discussion to be had about how UNMIS behaves when it's not in a very heated situation. Everyone now associates UNMIS with, with these moments when they are under active attack. But there have been years and years and years of everyday little actions of UN staff who were posted in, in some of the uh, UN camps, not inside Juba, who barely ever leave the compound. And if they do, they leave the compound only in a, in a convoy. And these are the same people who are then supposed to connect with, with the communities. They're the same people who are supposed to understand the political situations. They're supposed to understand when something is changing and to have, in a sense, their own early warning system that might actually make it possible to protect civilians beyond the very the moment of absolute action and reaction when, when an attack breaks out. And I think that, that really is another crucial thing to, to talk about. In a way, the UN, I think, has to have a, a broader discussion about what is really possible for a peacekeeping mission and, and what Meta said hints at a lot of those obstacles that we're all very aware of. But there is something really, really important and very valuable in everyday actions of people who work on a UN mission, whether they are political officers trying to make a little bit of interaction every day or whether they are staff patrolling and actually never leaving the compound. I think those are the really, really crucial things that really need to change. And for those... I would argue a Security Council resolution isn't necessary. There's, there's something possible there within the management of UNMIS. I think it's fair to say that what has you know, shocked everyone 
um, more and more in latter years is the violence against um, women and girls. Actually, Jock, I was going to ask you, why is it so pervasive, so brutal? Um, I think, you know, everything has been reported as of late. It's, it's, it's really deeply disturbing. What is your reading? We lost Jock. Okay. We lost Jock later. Lydia, what do you mm. think? No, I'm here. Oh, okay. <laughs> we lost <laughs> you. <laughs> Seems I, I, well, I guess I didn't understand um, that the, the, the idea that there is a conflict, a conflict in South Sudan is a little bit of a misnomer, as there are multiple conflicts. And so uh, to blame one side for the humanitarian blockages uh, or the other is a little uh, unfair, both to the parties but also to UNMIS itself, uh, in the sense that without in, uh, intending to vindicate UNMIS, I would say that UNMIS um, found itself in a, in, a, in a tough situation in the sense that the government is the primary protector of civilians, so it shouldn't be relegated to a, to a, to a UN peacekeeping mission. Uh, but secondly, because UNMIS came into an, a country where it was aimed to, 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 to do one thing, but now it has found itself doing many things that were not part of the mandate, which is to, to, to protect civilians against other citizens instead of protecting civilians against uh, warring parties or against a foreign country like Sudan, which was envisioned, might have a, a conflict with South Sudan. So to, 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 to blame UNMIS singularly, uh, is is to also be oblivious to the challenges it faces on a daily basis from 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 the deployment part, but also from the everyday management of it. Uh, the, these challenges are there, and so I wanted to say that um, uh, an army, uh, whether it is a government army or an opposition army, is not out to carry out violence uh, on a daily basis just for the for the for, for just for the hell of it. Um, there are uh, intractable. Uh, deep uh, historical and cultural issues. It would be best to look at South Sudan from the point of view uh, of those historical uh, trajectories, historical movements. Uh, the war between North and South has its own dri driving uh, forces behind that violence. The war within uh, South Sudan between the various parties have its own drivers. The, the reproduction of violence within communities as a result of prolonged subjection to violence is another. So there are all these cultural, historical uh, uh, complexities that need to be understood beyond just an, uh, warring parties uh, bent on going out and rape. So uh, uh, the question that... Sorry, sorry, go ahead, Pete. No, no. You mind if I just add one, one point there? You know, I, I think it's important when we look across uh, the last you know, three plus years of the war, I think it's important to understand that the preponderance of violence against civilians, and Jock makes an important point in terms of the primacy of the government in terms of protecting civilians. In this case, the preponderance of violence against civilians has been perpetrated by the government. That is not in any way to exonerate the egregious abuses against civilians by other armed groups, by the IO, uh, by others. Uh, and those have been well documented, going back to the AU Commission of Inquiries uh, own report. But when you look at uh, the campaigns uh, in unity in Upper Nile last year uh, undertaken by the government, when you look at the situation in, uh, in Equatoria, uh, these, are, uh, these are mass campaigns with very high civilian death tolls that are being uh, directed by the government and perpetrated by, uh, by the SPLA or by government-affiliated militias. And I think that's an important point. Uh, for all of us to bear in mind. Uh, secondly, I would just maybe reiterate something I said earlier, which is that when we talk about UNMIS or peacekeeping operations, when we talk about development interventions, when we talk about these sort of technical interventions into civil wars, SSR, DDR, etc., we all have to remember that all you, other experiences, and this is you know, something I think it won't come as a surprise or novel to anybody in the room, but you know, none of these things function absent an effective political architecture for ending a war. So we can continue programmatic interventions all we want. We can continue, you know, peacekeeping operations, et cetera, et cetera. But the last three years of that effort, just in the South Sudan context, 
has seen a steep deterioration uh, of the conflict and of the situation for civilians in the country. What hasn't been, uh, I think, carefully examined, and Jock has written very eloquently about this, is what are our core assumptions about the political framework uh, that the international community, whether that's the UN Security Council, whether it's EGAD, whether it's the African Union, whether it's the parties themselves, have used uh, to try to, um, to bring this to some sort of uh, new political dispensation. And we haven't really rethought our core assumptions about whether power sharing works in a South Sudanese context. How do you address fragmentation of rebel groups, et cetera, right? Uh, and, and I think that's, that's very urgently needed uh, rather than uh, trying to continue to refine or, or think that we can uh, fix this through, uh, you know, by making adjustments to the peacekeeping force or, you know, doing development, doing security sector reform. Thanks. I'm conscious of time, but I think one thing we haven't touched upon is really um, how difficult it has become for humanitarian workers to operate in South Sudan. Uh, you know, ultimately, this is humanitarian exchange, and it really does focus on you know the effort that practitioners in South Sudan are trying to you know bring together you know both to protect and. Um, um, support civilians. I mean, the last three years we've had 43 aid workers killed. Um, you know, the, the, we've all been hearing until now the level, the brutality, you know, the violence is just shocking, both against civilians and against aid workers. And that's a question for all of you, really. But how can humanitarian organizations, humanitarian um, um, officials operate um, effectively in such a context? What are some of the strategies that they have been adopting or they can adopt? You know, we have a new um, head of women coming in. What should he be doing, you know, to try and support the community of humanitarian workers um, to really, you know, navigate the challenges that are phenomenal? Um, Lita, do you want to start? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll come on to that. Can I? Could I just quickly come back to the question that got skipped over yeah, about the sorry. increase of violence against women and girls? Because yes. it's a really important um, point that it's important we don't skip over. Um, we were starting already from a very low baseline. Uh, South Sudan, prior to December 2013, was a very highly militarized society. Um, domestic violence was uh, widely accepted. Um, there was a survey in 2011 where um, people were asked, are there times when a woman deserves to be beaten? And 63% of men and 68% of women agreed with the statement. So we're looking already at a situation. So the enabling environment already existed. And we know that in, during a time of war, during a time of conflict, rape and sexual assault isn't just used as a physical weapon, it's also used as a psychological weapon. And that's particularly in the case where um, there are there are ethnic overtones to the conflict, and as Peyton was saying earlier, that has just increased in the last few years. So just just to emphasise that um, that there has been an increase, and it's 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 due to rape and sexual violence being used as a weapon of war, and it's due to the lack of also the lack of command and control of troops on all parts of the conflict, both the government side, the IO, and also all of the militia groups. Um, with regard to your... Well, and, sorry, you know, yeah. how can humanitarians work in this environment? They obviously have a mandate, you know, to try and protect civilians themselves, um, you know, into all sorts of different strategies, but they, you know, they've been attacked themselves in this way. Uh, how mm. can they operate? <laughs> Well, the, the entire international community, not just humanitarians, but the entire international community needs to have a, a more coordinated approach to support to the, uh, the, the problem of violence against women and girls in South Sudan. Um, there, there are ad hoc initiatives, but there's a lack of coordination. And there needs to be continued engagement with the security services, um, you know, much much as it's unpalatable, um, that we have to recognize that the military remains the, the strongest force in South Sudan, and that's going to keep dominating the landscape for a while. And also, we have to ensure that the human, that that the the UNMIS and the rest of the humanitarian community, as Marika was saying, is being proactive, is ste is stepping outside of the compound, is not waiting until these incidents occur, but is developing relationships with the communities. Marika. 
in a way, I can just uh, continue that. I think that the lack of control and command is obviously tragic and the reason for terrible things, but it is also weirdly an opportunity and maybe one priority for the incoming head of UNMIS is to really remember that there are actors outside Juba, and if that lack of control and command exists, it is maybe not the most useful approach to, to try and establish it first and then to see whether that then trickles down into less violence, but really rethink um, what other actors Anonymous could very actively engage with. Uh, Jock, you're sorting out something that we can see the seed in. <laughs> we can see you again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think I've been muted. There you go. Um, yeah, I think, uh, first of all, before you think about that aid workers, uh, there is a real question about the international humanitarian intervention themselves, the way it is perceived locally. When you inject such uh, massive amounts of uh, supplies into a place where people have serious deficits, uh, these supplies become a uh, source of contention and source of conflict themselves. The fact that those people who are in control of them are the verdicts, whether by people who feel uh, desperately excluded from all other services, or by armed groups who see that these humanitarian aid workers are siding with one side, with one side of the conflict or the other. So the contest over uh, resources supplied by humanitarian agencies is a problem in itself, uh, in the sense that it is a big driver of uh, further layer of conflict in such a situation as South Sudan. So there is no question that uh, humanitarian aid workers are going to be uh, subject to to, to these kinds of attacks from various uh, uh, angles. Now, the, the, uh, this is to underscore that actually, uh, that humanitarian aid, the helpful and appreciated sometimes that is may be, uh, has actually, if the last 30 or 40 years of humanitarian intervention in South Sudan are anything to go by, are by far uh, major contributors to conflict, but they are not uh, anywhere near being a solution uh, to the crisis going on in the country. So is it no time really to rethink humanitarian intervention, uh, uh, not just in terms of how effectively we can provide it, but whether it is actually, it should actually be, uh, be questioned uh, to begin with. Uh, now, of course, there are questions about people who might die if you don't intervene, but uh, to what end? I mean, people are already dying. And, uh, and I think there is a, uh, this is a moment where intervention in South Sudan really needs to be, to be revisited uh, uh, because what has been done for 30, 40 years, beginning with OLS, uh, is not, has not uh, produced fruits uh, in terms of uh, reducing the, the death toll. Um, with regards to how to, uh, to strategize to protect aid agencies and aid workers, um, I think I agree with Lydia that uh, some degree of coordination uh, with uh, the warring parties and, and obviously there is a need for aid agencies to, 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 to secure the commitment and agreement of the warring parties uh, to the protection but also to open access in terms of uh, agencies having a schedule when they put in a, a request to go to a 